Welcome to the Rock and Roll Research Podcast, where we share the super cool backstories and side gigs of the research and insights pros that you trust. Today's guest is David Yin, who is currently a marketing executive at the Fortune 500 company LabCorp, who is known for making the world a healthier place through world-class diagnostic testing and drug development capabilities. And David, if I if I saw the news right, I think I saw an announcement from the FDA that you're recently approved for an in-home use test that covers COVID, flu, and RSV all at the same time. Is that is that true? Yes, it's for home collection, and you can do all three tests from one simple nasal swab. So we're really Super proud of it. Cool. Yeah, that's excellent. Excellent. Uh, good on you. That's that's innovation. In progress, so very, very cool. Um, so now the truth is that David spent much of his career in insights, consumer insights, working for some really great companies like Clorox and Fitbit and Ancestry.com amongst others, but insights was quite a deviation from the career path that he had planned for and trained for. And we're gonna cover all of that on today's podcast. So welcome to the show, David. Thank you. Super. All right. So, so let's talk about LabCorp and what you're doing now. What is what does that role entail? Yeah. So, I, you know, as you mentioned, my career has taken a couple of different twists and turns along the way. So it's, it started in a place that was different than where it where it was in the middle and where it is now. Yeah. Uh, so I'm currently the head of consumer, leading the direct-to-consumer business for LabCorp. We started something called LabCorp On Demand, where anyone can come and order their own lab tests online, pay with a credit card, show up at a LabCorp location or have a kit sent to them, and get their own results to better manage their health. Sure. So uh, it's really changing the way people think about and manage their health on their own without necessarily having to visit the doctor, because that's obviously been more and more challenging over the last several years. Absolutely. Additionally, I also lead primary care marketing. So that's the B2B marketing to primary care physicians for our core services. Yeah, that's uh, that's all really great to hear because it everyone knows that healthcare services have been ripe for innovation for a long time. And there is some component to, you know, home home-based care and um, and it's great to hear that you're, you're really tackling that space. So super cool. Now, um, let's go all the way back, right? Because your role at LabCorp is kind of a culmination of a lot of things that, that you had done uh, along the way. But take, take us all the way back, David. Let's, let's hear your story. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. If you had told me along the way, things that I'd be doing two years out, every single step, I would have laughed at you. <laughs> so it's been uh, quite the adventure that was unexpected. Uh, you know, I started uh, in school and undergrad as a chemical engineer, and the, the plan yeah. was to go to medical school. That was always the plan. I was well on my way. I did everything that one had to do. I think I basically... Uh, finished all the steps except taking the MCAT and submitted an application. And I reached yeah. a point during um, junior year, senior year, whenever you have to make that decision now, it's so long ago, um, where that didn't feel right anymore. Uh, you know, I thought it was going to make my parents happy, but it wasn't going to make me happy. And sure. 
started to lean more into my actual core education in chemical engineering, ended up staying and doing a master's in bioengineering. And uh, in the meantime there as well, I did an internship at Merck on the HIV vaccine program as a process development engineer. Oh, wow. Given all of the academic training that I had, that should have been the dream job. Yeah. And unfortunately, R&D in a large pharma company was not a good personality fit for me. Just the whole <laughs> idea of working on a single vaccine or drug for 15 years and having it maybe not get to market yeah. <laughs> was quite the right fit for how I wanted to think about the impact I wanted to make. And so yeah. that was one of the first, well, that was one of the first two twists where I didn't go to med school and then surprisingly didn't go to pharma or biotech. Right. Only other industry that I had thought was interesting was actually consumer packaged goods. Just the idea of making products that millions of people would use every day was really appealing, especially when you thought about the kinds of products that like the Clorox made. That's where I ended up ultimately sure. as a product developer for a number of years. Uh, you know, the spirit of the company was make everyday life easier every day. While it wasn't saving lives when you aggregated up all these moments that people had with these products that made their lives just a little bit better, uh, you know, like, couldn't that be added up to saving a life? Was that impact of that something that was still valuable? I, I thought so, right? So uh, in general, the theme that you'll hear is that I'm very purpose-driven, where I have to believe in whatever it is that I'm working on. Sure. And, you know, Clorox was an incredible company to cut my teeth, learned a ton, uh, it was also, uh, you know, my first introduction to consumers. I mean, I come from a biotech background. I still right. remember one of my earliest conversations with my boss was, we could clearly make better cleaning products. Why don't we? Yeah. <laughs> and her answer was, well, they'd be $20 a bottle and no one would buy them. And I was like, why wouldn't anybody buy them? If they're better, they're better. And just yeah. this whole experience of what do you mean people can't tell if a product is better? Uh, and, you know, I learned a really important lesson over those years as a product developer where, you know, perception was reality. And we spent right. probably about 25% of our time as R&D product developers with consumers doing in-home interviews, doing central location tests where we'd have hundreds of consumers into the facility and try prototypes and, you know, collect survey data and compare across them to see what people actually noticed about performance. And my mind was blown as someone who had come from a yeah. really pure high science technical background yeah. where if anything, uh, experience trumped performance after a certain point, right? And yeah. that was just a surprise to me where changing the color, the thickness, the smell mattered more for the performance perception than performance itself. I could yeah. show using machines that something cleaned better than something else. Regular people couldn't tell the difference. Yeah. Anyway. From there, you know, I realized that was the part of my job that I loved was right. all the consumer work, watching the people, interpreting what they were doing, bringing that back into design changes to make our products better. And I realized the other 75% of my job, I really wasn't that excited about. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, you know, you have that moment too, where you realize you don't want your boss's job, right? So right. at that point, you know, I, I learned that there were people's whole jobs in R&D, not R&D, in marketing at Clorox that was to focus on just learning about customers and trying to bring that information back and driving the strategy for a brand. Right. So once I discovered that, 
I was like, that's the job for me. And yeah. I had myself transfer to marketing into a consumer insights role and the rest was history. So I, I know there's a lot of detail in that part of the story, but that was like kind of the formative part of what really drove me into an insights career. And from there, it was such a you know general skill set that could be applied to any industry, to any customer type, to mm-hmm. uh, you know, any, any business situation. That's where I was really fortunate to be able to take that and go across a number of different companies. I went from Clorox to Avon to do global work. Uh, everything we did there was multi-country. Uh, Clorox was incredible, but it was pr- primarily US centric. Right. And then uh, from Avon, I realized I really wanted to do something smaller. Like this, you know, the startup technology company wave was happening at that time. And yeah, I, I somehow got into my head. I don't know who gave me this idea, but I was like, I'm going to start my own insights function from scratch. I'm such a believer in this type of work and I'm so passionate about it that, you know, what better way to show, show someone that that matters than starting a department. Right. Right. So I went to Eventbrite, uh, which is at the time it was the the single largest online ticketer uh, in the world uh, Mm -hmm. for any kind of event. And again, going back to sort of the purpose piece, it was really about democratizing events for anyone to be able to organize online, right? It right. was a really important mission. And then anyway, I went there to build them a customer learning function from scratch. Uh, I did that for a couple of years, was really proud of the work that I did there. But ultimately it was a small business B2B company, more in that vein of things, large business as well, but it was still more B2B and really missed consumer because the yeah. way that I flex my skills in a true consumer business is just different. So that's how I ended up at Fitbit is through some old Clorox colleagues. Uh, and I built and scaled some like their whole customer learning function from scratch over four years and was there for the whole run up of wearables. When I joined Fitbit, it was like 190 employees and a couple hundred million dollars in sales. No one had ever heard of one when I, <laughs> when I would tell people where I work, they were like, what is that? <laughs> and over that time, it blew up to yeah. being a, I think, a 1,600-person company, over $2 billion in sales and a household name. Yep. So in the midst of all that, building a customer learning inside strategy function from scratch for them was in, an incredible experience. And ultimately, I also ended up leading brand strategy in my last role there. Got it. Um, and then, you know, I, I somehow had, at that point, built two research functions from scratch. And had this reputation for knowing how to do that. And the chief marketing officer at Ancestry found me and was like, hey, we really need one of these functions as well. He was also ex-packaged goods. Uh, and, you know, Fitbit had been incredible. Uh, but at some point, I really loved, I learned that through Fitbit that I loved being at the intersection of consumer health and technology and Ancestry was the single largest consumer genomics company in the world. Right. And, you know, the promise of DNA and thinking back to my original academic experience in bioengineering and so forth, I was like, wow, I really have to jump on this ship. Uh, where, are there, where is there another opportunity to start a whole other category like fitness trackers, right? So right. I went to Ancestry to build them the whole customer learning function from scratch, which I did and scaled over a number of years. And then that's when my role started to shift, uh, where I got responsibility for more and more while I was at Ancestry. Uh, ultimately, I 
uh, led a combination of pricing and packaging, competitive intelligence, consumer insights, UX research, uh, brand, uh, strategy, marketing operations, et cetera. And so that's when I really started to uh, have a career that was much, much broader than you know, insights itself. And, right. you know, it was a great opportunity for me to think about like what I wanted to do in a different way and take different career paths. I mean, at some point I get calls all the time to start research functions from scratch. After doing it three times, I was like, I don't know if I want to do it again. <laughs> uh, it's an incredible experience, but not something that I thought I would learn a ton from. Uh, and then that's where uh, at, at Ancestry had a great run. It was an incredible experience, but I got this call from LabCorp to lead their consumer business, to be the head of consumer, not just the head of marketing for it, not just the head of insights uh, for it, but to really run the whole thing. And it was an opportunity for me to take an operational role and really, again, sort of continue to learn and grow and challenge myself. So it's been an incredible ride that I am still grateful for and surprised by every day. <laughs> yeah, I just I just love your story because, you know, at first it's and how it relates to insights. You know, first you feel the pull uh, that attractive pull of insights, right? There's, it's so intellectually rewarding and exciting. <clears throat> and then you, you threw yourself into it and develop this deep expertise. And then at the end, you find, you know, how valuable that is, uh, to, you know, broader roles and greater responsibility. And you take that experience and you apply it to the next thing. It's just a, it's a great story. I really, really love it. Yeah. It, it's making, focusing on customers, the core of your expertise is yeah. so important for everything else that happens, right? And, yeah. And I still use those skills that I honed in my like 10,000 hours of listening to customers and really deeply understanding them to drive all of my recommendations for strategy and all my decision-making for how we ultimately grow the business and so forth. I am grateful for all the time that I've spent like boots on the ground with real customers. Yeah. Now, when you think about, think way back to your chemistry days and sort of pursuing a medical career um, beyond reaching a point where you say, this isn't exactly what I want to do. Was there some thread of, you know, of, of what you learned back then beyond the science mm -hmm. that has been useful and carried you forward? Yeah, it's interesting. This is a, a great question. I've often, I've often thought about this, like, how, how did my education, which was so different than my ultimate career path, prepare me for my life? Because at some point you often wonder like, was it worth it? There was a lot of work. Yeah. Right. Uh, but one of the things that has always really struck me is that as a chemical engineer, most of the way we solve problems and thought about things was through systems and processes and frameworks. Like it wasn't just about any individual problem you were solving. It's about how all the problems you're solving are connected to one another. And right. that way of thinking, not just about individual pieces, but the whole system has really influenced the way that I approach everything and sure. the way I even approached insights. I know we talk as insights professionals a lot about synthesis, but there's a difference between gathering everything together and understanding how they really connect to one another. Um, and so that, what, that way of thinking has actually been one of the things that's mo made me most successful in my career. Just as an example, uh, one of the things that, that I've always impressed upon my team is that 
as you gather insights, like what is the framework that they all fit into, right? Like how, how can you think about all the steps that a consumer is going through and put that together in a way that someone can see on a page and really understand, oh, this is how it all hooks together. Because oftentimes, I'm sure you've heard this before, you know, there's this concept of desire, decide, and delight, right? These different parts of a customer journey. And if you if you think about what you hear from customers, if you're asking them about different parts of that journey, you'll get answers that conflict with one another. And that conflict makes cross-functional partners sometimes doubt whether consumer research is even valuable. Customers can't tell you what they want. And I'm like, well, they are telling you what they want in the right context. And you have to be able to break it up into the right framework or system to understand that. So the classic example that I always use with partners too is let's think about shampoo right? Uh, The advertising that got your attention, the thing that got your attention to want to pay attention uh, about buying the shampoo, that benefit is different than what happens at shelf. Because at shelf, the thing that most people do is they grab the bottle, they crack it open, they take a whiff, and if they don't like the smell, they put it back. So what drove your attention and what drove your decision are actually different insights. But if you mix those things up, then you're actually not helping to drive the right business decision or you're confusing the business, right? Right. And then of course, there's also just the actual in-use experience of the product itself, which is gonna drive whether you buy it again, but that may also, again, be different than what got your attention to begin with. Mm -hmm. So uh, these types of frameworks are really important for helping people understand. The other thing that always drives me crazy is some language that the marketing and insights space uses a lot now is customer journeys. Mm-hmm. I think journeys are really important, but at the end of the day, that automatically suggests a beginning, middle, and end. Right. And ultimately, you want your customer experience to keep going. Yep. And so I always push my teams to think in cycles. Like, how do you bring a consumer back? Not just what is the journey of this particular experience where there's a termination. And then you ask yourself, once you're done with that, like, what do we do now? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so, Anyway, just some examples of the way that my engineering education forced me to think that then led me to thinking differently about the way that we even pull insights together. Yeah, yeah, that's really fascinating and makes makes a lot of sense. So um, thinking about the insights roles that you had, uh, particularly in leadership roles, right, where you have to make bets on uh, you know, what you're going to spend against, what's going to deliver the insights that you need. And now, now of course, as essentially a user, right? And a consumer of, of those insights. Um, as you think about you know, where insights is headed, you know, what trends are important, what are really contributory and will be going forward, what, what comes to mind for you? There are a bunch of things. I think the insight space is, at a really interesting time, right? Where, you know, when I started working in insights, it was still kind of the tail end of what I would, what I would call like the heyday of packaged goods, right? right. Where, yeah. you know, insights functions were centralized, like very well developed, um, very strong best practices and so forth. I'm always so grateful for having cut my teeth inside of a packaged goods company that was really well developed in that way, right? It just, the reference, points and like tools to be able to think about problems, I think has pre- like prepared me a lot for the rest of my career that was just in this whole shape of ambiguity. Sure. Uh, I do think that some of the things I've noticed over time that 
are really important to invest in from a consumer insights expertise standpoint uh, is just getting back to basics in some ways. I think that between all the technology advancements of like all these like DIY self-service tools and all of the you know, new methods, like there's always some shiny object, but at some point it's all built on a core foundation of a true technical skill. And it's interesting, one of the things that I always try to check in on when I was interviewing candidates and building my teams is, do you actually understand the fundamentals of research? Like I point blank ask people, if you were to, if you were to design a concept test, what is your minimum sample size that you would recommend and why? the number of people who can't answer that question yeah or it's like what is your point of view on a 10 point scale versus a five point scale versus a four point scale when do you use each one and why like what Mm -hmm. are your trade-offs when you're doing that and these are just like core fundamentals that people should know and a lot of people it always surprises me don't have a point of view or can't answer the questions effectively and i do think there is that how do we get back to making sure that the professionals that this whole industry is creating are able to still grapple with the core fundamentals because everything else is built on top of that, right? Right. Every new method should be challenged by whether you understand the core fundamentals of how something worked, right? And this whole, you know, fragmentation of like, anybody can be a researcher because they're DIY tools. It's like, oh, well, if you have a SurveyMonkey account and a pulse, you're a researcher. That's not true. And how do we really as an industry start to make sure that that's like something that we're impressing upon our cross-functional partners, right? There are certain things that you can do, but there are a lot of things that you probably shouldn't do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, And it's interesting. I think over time, it it felt like, uh, like you said, if you were to work at say, you know, a big packaged goods company, uh, you'll get the classic research training, right? That rigor that's required. And uh, a lot of the best suppliers would provide that training as well for new hires. Um, it feels like that that outlet or that avenue is isn't quite as robust as it used to be, and it's it falls more on I don't know coursework. Um, you know, where do people develop that rigor now? You know, that that is the question, and that is where I, as someone who's built functions, was trying to invest, right, making sure right, that right. people are spending time with the right vendors, with the right types of projects, like holding the line on what I thought was really important from like a core skills standpoint. Because if the industry or the leaders of these functions aren't doing that, who is doing it? Right. Right. Yeah. The other piece of it that's challenging too is the pendulum swing of, you know, centralization to fragmentation, right? right? Where what we used to think of as insights functions, I think across industries and in different places actually is now distributed in a bunch of different places, right? You have separate market research functions from UX research functions, from analytics functions, from customer experience, like customer satisfaction functions. And the list goes on and on. And there's always some new customer learning function that pops up and they are valuable, but the way I still think about it is in a system, you need to connect the dots across all of those things. Right. So how do we start like cross-pollinating those skills and bringing those people together more is a really important piece for making customer functions successful and influential inside larger organizations. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love that. I've seen the same trend, so I know, exact, know exactly what you're talking about. Cool. All right, David. Oh, go ahead. Can I add one last thing to that? Sure. I think 
as a piece of that too, we as insights professionals need to hold the line on what we think an insight actually is. It's interesting having you know, interviewed for a lot of roles where I was starting functions from scratch, like people will often ask a question like, what's the best insight you've ever uncovered? <laughs> I'm yeah. like, I don't even know what that means, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so through all those experiences, I realized people don't know what an insight is. And I had to have my own definition of what an insight truly is. And the thing that I came up with is that an, a real insight has to meet at least three criteria. Right. There are sort of like these fundamentals that if you don't, if you don't reach these, then it's not really an insight. It's it's just something interesting that you learned or a fact or something cool. Like, you know, consumers prefer red over blue for this kind of packaging. That's great. That's useful information, but it's not truly an insight. Right. Uh, insight has to be uh, what I call intuitive, right? Where it's something that has to make sense for people, right? If if you if you get an insight where you're like, hmm, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I don't mean obvious, excuse me. I don't mean obvious, but it has to feel like true about humans, right? So intuitive. And then it has to be inspiring. Like when I tell you this thing right. about people and humans, it has to generate lots of ideas about what you could do with that information. Like um, it should be generative in that way. Right, right. And then the last thing is that it has to be actionable for the business that you are on, right? Because yeah. ultimately- Contextual, insight, yeah. yeah. Insights is ultimately a business function. It's not just an academic function. So there are lots of things that you could learn that are intuitive and inspiring that are not actionable for the business that you are on. Right. Uh, and that ultimately to me is that when you meet those three criteria and you can start to use that in like that piece over and over again with cross-functional partners and they get it, that's the power of, a, of an insights function, right? Yeah. Not just all the individual questions that you can answer. How do you, you know, start to bring these types of core pieces to the teams that can then drive things forward? Yeah, I, I love that. I love that, especially since the word insights gets really thrown about nowadays and, and really has kind of lost its meaning. You know, it's like, yeah. let's, start, let's start with, let's start with definitions here, right? So. To your point, that is something that dry, like has driven me crazy is it's gotten so watered down. No one knows what it is anymore. So yeah. you as the leader have to hold the line on what one is and why that's important. Right. And try to teach people about the power of that, like that real truth of it all versus just, you know, we can call everything a strategy. We can call everything an insight. Right. 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 <laughs> yeah. I love it. Cool. Cool. All right, David. So this is uh, this is a podcast, right? Um, I'm sure you're still consuming media to some extent, you know, very curious to know uh, what the sources are that you confront or you consult for insights, information, inspiration, enjoyment, what's on your list? You know, it's interesting. Part of the reason I was excited to do this is that I am a big fan of podcasts. Oh, nice. It's actually one of my major sources. The, excuse me, the other one is audiobooks. I just, this whole audio sort of renaissance that's been happening over the last decade, I have been a big fan of. It's been uh, a big unlock for me too. Just, we're all so busy that you like, you know, you, just sitting down anymore, doing any one thing, just focusing on like reading is, is hard time to carve out, right? Right. But to be able to have a podcast on or an audiobook on while I'm making dinner or cleaning the house or even on a walk or a run, et cetera, I think it's really made additional space for me to learn and be inspired. Yeah. Um, 
So those are like still my go-to formats now for mm -hmm. uh, all the things you're describing. I mean, there are a couple of like key like books uh, and podcasts that I really enjoy. I'm happy to share those if that's what you'd be interested in hearing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So from an audiobook standpoint, a couple of my favorites over the last several years, not sure if you've ever read Hitmakers by Derek Thompson. I haven't. About sort of why things become popular and it has lots of implications for marketing, product development and so forth. So just very practical in that regard. Yeah. Uh, Aegis by Jonah Berger is another great one yep. uh, in that same vein. But, you know, it's interesting to read the two of them next to each other. They take different takes. Uh, one of the things I loved about Contagious is that it took data and found all these truths that uh, that we had learned in packaged goods. Like the things that he describes in that book, I was like, oh, this had become just sort of lore in packaged goods, these insights that he had. Right. It's because in packaged goods, the industry took a hundred years to trial and error their way into <laughs> to those learnings. Yeah. And it took real data and proved that those things were true. And I was like, that's just amazing and inspiring, uh, again, for sort of where I grew up. Uh, yeah. Grit by Angela Duckworth, another great one, if you haven't read that one. Um, and then I also, outside of just sort of these like more sort of, uh, uh, you know, like social economics and so forth books, uh, there's biographies I, I always really enjoy hearing individual people's stories about what they did and how they did it. Right. Uh, Ride of a Lifetime by Bob Iger is a great one, the oh, CEO of Disney. Uh, definitely, if you read that one, read the appendix. He sort of summarizes the whole thing. It's a great resource to come back to again and again. Oh, cool. And then another one that I've really enjoyed, and this is pretty different, is Music to My Years uh, by Cristela Alonzo. She's a stand-up comedian, uh, had her own show on television for a while. She actually grew up very poor in South Texas mm -hmm. uh, as you know, from an immigrant family and just the very rich and real story about, you know, what that means and what that's like is something I think people should know. And it's great that, you know, she's out there telling her story in a way that's really accessible. I mean, it's just my own background was not quite to the same extent, but similar where immigrant family, mm -hmm. you know, parents who came from nothing in the middle of East Texas, you know, yeah uh dealing with some of the culture around me right uh where yeah. it really spoke to me but i i think even her story is uh really powerful and it, i think especially from an insight standpoint really thinking about what other people's experiences is like is so important mm -hmm. uh, in that like you know everyday way that she talks about yeah yeah and then from a podcast standpoint, I'm a really big fan of Derek Thompson and I like his, I love his current podcast, Plain English. It's just constant summary of what's happening in current events and uh, economics and so forth. And then uh, another pretty different one is Imaginary World. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this one. I haven't. I forget. I can't believe I've forgotten the name of the guy who runs it, uh, but it's uh, science fiction fantasy uh, podcast where he sort of breaks down different themes and trends and stories and what's happening and why people are interested in certain things. It's actually a, a really interesting sort of cultural anthropology experience yeah. around uh, you know, how that subculture, which has actually become mainstream culture, yeah. is you know dealing with things like you know disabilities and people who play video games and so forth. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to listen to and his take on things. So anyway, just a list of yeah. some of the that inspire me. 
on a regular. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I've I've long been a board gamer, you know, a, a role role player with Dungeons and Dragons, and still take my kids to the, the gaming shops. And so it's interesting to see how that whole space has evolved. And you're right, yeah. it's a mainstream culture now. Yeah, yeah. He talks about that, which is fascinating, and about yeah. and it, also, if you think about adoption curves and so forth and how that works and why, yeah. like it's just a really interesting, um, it's a really interesting listen that always surprises me in, in the way that it inspires me, other than just being sort of interesting content about whatever new movie is out, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cool. I'll, I'll definitely check that out. That sounds really cool. All right. So, you know, this is a rock and roll research podcast, right, David? So, <laughs> so we have to come to this. We got to talk rock and roll at some point. It actually doesn't have to be rock and roll, right? I don't want to. I don't want to seed anything, but this is a very important question to me. Um, so let's say, let's say you're stranded on a desert island, right? Um, you're there for the rest of your days, uh, but somebody grants you, in this case, me, three records, three records to keep you company for the rest of your days. What are those records, David? So I'm going to cheat a little bit on this <laughs> Everybody <laughs> cheats on this question. <laughs> uh, the first one, I'm going to cheat a lot, actually. Okay, I, okay. It, uh, one of the things that I enjoy the most, as I've already mentioned, is just, you know, verbal audio content, right? Yeah. And for a long, long time, I've really enjoyed stand-up comedy. Mm. And you, you know, I, I don't think they do this as much anymore, but back in the day, you used to be able to buy albums. I am on vinyl. Yeah. yeah buy albums of stand-up comedy. And one of my favorite ones is still Margaret Cho's sort of original album, the I Am the One That I Want. Yeah. Uh, awesome. So of her story and the jokes that she tells that really spoke to me. Yeah. Uh, even now, I still re-listen to it every now and again. And it, you know, makes me laugh and makes me sort of remember um, like all these different times and experiences that she's yeah. reflecting. So that's a big one. And I, I do think if I were alone on a desert island. Do, do you actually, by the way, David, do you actually own that on vinyl? No, I don't own it on vinyl, okay, but that's I do okay. own it on, uh, um, on in digital, like as like a like MP3 format or whatever. All right. I was just trying to double or treble your street cred here. But yeah, I love the Margaret Cho choice. Okay, so good. All right. So, but yeah, anyway, they, they used to actually call those things like stand-up albums. Like, yeah, so <laughs> it's category. That's it right. Uh, I'm a big fan of dance music. Mm -hmm. So one of my favorite dance music albums is Zed's Clarity, the deluxe version. So yeah. that's a great one. I think if you're trapped on a desert island, you need some energy. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Cool. Yeah. And the it's last not. one is I'm really big on movie soundtracks. I don't I don't know what it is. There's something about the combination of music with a story that's being told yep. and how music can reflect a broader story that I've like always been fascinated by. I have like this massive when we used to buy CDs, I have this like, massive binder uh, of just movie soundtracks that I bought, like yeah. all high school, college, et cetera. Cool. Uh, and one of my favorites, while this one is, not all of them are purely instrumental, this one is, is one of my favorite movies of all time is Gattaca. Have you ever heard of this movie? Yes, I, I do know the movie. Yeah. I never so, thought about the soundtrack, though. Yeah, there's something about the soundtrack that I always, that really I enjoyed. Uh, and it's just sort of like, it's a combination of like inspiring and sad and any number of things as the characters are going through all of their experiences. Because um, it's a story really about what is the, 
what is the worth of a single man? How do you overcome what other people mm -hmm. believe about you? Like that sort of thing. There's something about the story itself that really spoke to me. And right. then, the, then the music on top of it. So I think it would be something that in order to keep surviving on a desert island, I would want yeah. to be reminded about. Hey, uh, David, there are no cheats in there. Those those are all uh, total, totally legitimate choices. And actually really, really interesting choices. I love the Margaret Cho choice. It's It's definitely the most fun record, I think, that's that's been chosen so far in this question. So <laughs> great Thanks. stuff. Excellent. Uh, well, David, this has been really a, a wonderful chat. Um, really interesting uh, to hear sort of the breadth of experience and, and the, the hard-won lessons, I think, that you've learned in your time and insights that you've applied now to your uh, leadership role at LabCorp. It's really cool. Uh, love the story of your career. Thankful for your time here on the podcast, as I'm sure our listeners are as well. So thanks so much. And let's talk soon.